around us that that can't be measured the way the physical world can, but is just as real and, in fact, impinges upon and affects us. Um, You know, we've been seeing how the church in Revelation is persecuted and how it's tested and tempted, and there's terrible things taking place in this broken and sinful world. What we're going to see now is kind of like the curtain is being pulled back, and we're seeing there's another layer to reality of things that are affecting life in this world. That there is, in fact... A great dragon. Let's look at the text. Chapter 12, verse 1. Before we get to the dragon, there's a woman first. You remember that in verses 1 and 2? There's, there's the sign of drag, this dragon that, that uh, John sees. But first he sees the sign of a woman. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So here's a sign. It's a symbol. It's not literal. It's, it's, we're told it's a symbol in the heavens. What does it represent? Who is this woman? Some have argued that this is maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus, because you'll notice later she gives birth to a son, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Clearly a reference to Christ in the context of Revelation. So some have said maybe this is a picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and certainly Mary is the mother of Christ and she gave birth to him. But I think what's being described here is something bigger than Mary, more extensive than Mary herself. I, I, I'm going to argue that, that this woman is a, a symbol for the people of God in the Old and New Testaments. Or, or maybe to put it in context here, the Messianic community. So, so it's all of God's people sort of represented by this woman, this bride. You, you know, in Revelation, uh, there's all these opposites. You know, you have the woman who's the bride of Christ, and then you have the, the prostitute who destroys God's people. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You have, you have the people of God and God Himself, and you have the satanic counterfeits. So, so here is, I, I think, the bride of Christ, both in the Old and New Testaments, uh, especially, I think, here in verse 1 with, with the Old Testament in focus, the, the people of Israel. Again, look at chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. I mean, this beautiful woman, sort of cosmic splendor robing her. And, and it's interesting. You see that language of the sun and the moon and the twelve stars? That's actually an allusion back to the Old Testament. When, uh, you remember Joseph? Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat? Remember that guy? He, he had, and he had these dreams about a time when his family would would bow down to him. And in one of the dreams, he says, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to me. And and his family is like, what are you talking about? We're not going to bow down to you. He was referring to his father, his mother, and his 11 brothers who eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. And and so that that imagery of God's people represented by the sun, moon, and the, the stars is used here to describe the woman. And she's pregnant. She's giving birth. It's interesting in the Old Testament that that uh, Israel is sometimes described in the Old Testament as a pregnant woman trying to give birth. Trying to give birth to all the promises about the coming of the Messiah. You know, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about the kingdom of God that is coming, how Christ begins the kingdom of God. Well, in the Old Testament, it was all promises and prophecies. And it's almost like the people of God in the Old Testament are this pregnant woman lying there trying to push this baby out. You know, when is the Messiah going to come? When are God's promises going to be fulfilled? And, and there's this labor and, and pain that's involved in that. 
But not only does this woman represent the people of God in the Old Testament before the Messiah, she then is used as a symbol to represent the people of God in the New Testament after the coming of the Messiah. That's why I said I think she's a symbol for all of God's people, both Old and New Testament. Um, you don't notice down at the end of chapter 12 and verse 17, it says the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against who? The rest of her offspring. Who are who? Those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, so her offspring, those closely identified with her, are the people who follow the Messiah that she births. So, so there's this connectedness uh, among the people of God. Interestingly, in Revelation 19, we see the church described as the bride of Christ. But that word for bride in Greek is the same word as woman here. So, so it's like the same woman. She's before the Messiah giving birth to Jesus. And then she's also the people of God who follow the Messiah. And, and again, it just sort of speaks to the kind of the elasticity of the symbols and figurative language within Revelation. And so that's who this woman is, I believe. And there she is giving birth to Jesus, giving birth to the Messiah, so to speak. And just just a word of encouragement there before we get to the, the next vision. Um, I think it's just a reminder of, of who our identity is if we're Christians. We are the bride of Christ, clothed in the glory of salvation, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I think sometimes we as Christians get this kind of view of ourselves that like, Man, we're, we're such religious weirdos. Well, here we are in New England. Nobody's a Christian. I'm the only Christian on my lacrosse team. I'm the only Christian in my homeroom. I'm the only Christian at work. I'm the only one in my family. Everyone thinks I'm like this total religious nut. They've gone off the deep end. I've joined a cult or something. And I'm just trying to follow Christ, you know. And we feel like I'm powerless. I'm small and insignificant. And Revelation would remind us that there's another way of looking at God's people, that we're the bride of Christ. From God's perspective, we've been clothed in this heavenly raiment, that we are, uh, we're robed in Christ's righteousness. So that our identity as Christians should be found in Jesus. I think sometimes we, we continue to identify ourselves by you know, our addictions, our hang-ups, our past, our brokenness. You know, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person, I have this kind of job, I don't have a job. As if that's what our identity is. But as Christians, our identity is in Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I just think it's an encouraging vision here of, of the glory that we have in Christ. But just as soon as we begin to enjoy this vision, another vision in verse 3 appears. Suddenly, sort of a dark shadow covers the land. Suddenly the warmth of the woman's presence is canceled by a, a chill wind as the second sign in the heavens appears. And it's the sign of the dragon. Look at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. What a terrifying picture. And before we get into interpreting this vision, I just, just kind of let the, the terror of this vision just sort of sit with you viscerally. I mean, what's more frightening than to think of a predator biting and killing somebody with their teeth? Especially... A woman, so she's about to give birth. So I was like trying to visualize this. I was remembering my four children being born there in the birthing room. That's kind of a terrifying experience too. But anyway, um, she's, she's giving birth. 
And, and imagine in the birthing room, in the corner, is some predator. Some, some sharp-toothed, drooling, slavering predator who the second that baby is born, and they're like, look it is, wants to lunge from the shadows and grab it and, and kill it. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying, horrific image. And, and right away, we should have a really terrible feeling about what this creature is. This is not, you know, this dragon isn't like that new movie, How to Train Your Dragon. You know, that's a great movie. Uh, this is not dragon, okay? This is a terrifying, evil, violent villain who wants to destroy, to steal, to kill, and destroy. What is a dragon then? You see that, that word, verse 3, a dragon. A Greek word is dracon, from which we get our English word, dragon. And uh, a dracon, it could refer to a serpent, like a snake, you know, which again confirms my suspicion that all snakes are evil. And uh, I'm sort of with Indiana Jones on that one. Um, it could also refer to a sea, a sea creature. But sometimes that serpent or dragon imagery is, is used more figuratively as a way of describing destructive enemies of God's people who would, who would seek to kill and destroy God's people and oppose God's work. Uh, so, for instance, if you take out, if you look in your bulletin, I, I put the sermon notes in your bulletin. You can take this out. There's so much stuff to cover here. I can't cover it all, so I just jam it in here, and you can read that if you want. If, if you go to the inside, the second page, where it says about halfway down the sign of the dragon, and you'll see a, a middle paragraph here in italics from Psalm 74. It's interesting. Psalm 74 is a reflection, in part, back on the Exodus from Egypt when the Israelites went through the Red Sea and escaped Pharaoh. And what's interesting is, is that as the psalmist in Psalm 74 is reflecting back on Israel's history, he uses this figurative language of the dragon to describe Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Psalm 74, verses 12 to 15. But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. There's the Red Sea crossing. You broke the head of the dracon... In the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him his food to the desert creatures of the desert. So here's Pharaoh being killed in the Red Sea crossing, referred to kind of figuratively as this, this great dracon with many heads. Or Isaiah 51 does the same thing. Awake, awake, clothe yourselves in strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, he's remembering back now, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab the pieces, who pierce that dracon through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? But it's not just Pharaoh who's portrayed as an evil dragon. There's also King Nebuchadnezzar who, who later uh, sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews into captivity. Look on the second page, or the next page over, the third page. We're about a third of the way down. It starts with Nebuchadnezzar. From Jeremiah 51, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He's made us an empty jar like a dracon. He has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then spewed us out. So we come to Revelation chapter 12 and we see this dragon who has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And we realize that this dragon has been around and at work through the world for many millennia, that he was there 
through Pharaoh trying to kill the Israelites. He was there through Nebuchadnezzar, one of his crowns, trying to destroy Israel then. He was there in in the day of Herod, king of Palestine, when he tried to kill Jesus. He was there in the book of time of the Revelation when uh, the emperor Domitian of Rome was seeking to persecute Christians. This dragon has been biting and attacking. He, He was there in that weird thing we just read in Daniel about this evil king. You know, this dragon is, is there behind the scenes. That, that beyond this world that we see is a spiritual world where this dragon exists. And, and who is this dragon? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. We know if, if the woman, you know, that's a little, maybe a little hard to interpret. Fortunately, the dragon, we know who he is. Verse 9. I love it when Revelation interprets its own symbolism. Because that means there's a high chance I'm going to get it right. Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So who is this dragon? Well, it's, it's the devil. Satan himself. In the biblical worldview, there is a realm that's part of our world, a spiritual, I don't know, dimension, I don't even know the right word for it, where there are beings like angels, like demons, and including a, sort of a prince, a chief devil, Satan himself. And, and in the biblical understanding of reality, the devil is not just an anthropomorphism to describe evil in the world. He's, he's real and somehow working behind the scenes to bring evil into the world. He's, he's the monster behind the other monsters. Uh, any, any of you uh, here play video games and kids, adults? You know, uh, in, in video games, usually at the end of it, there's some final boss. That's, what, that's, what, that's video game language. A boss you have to beat. So you, so you play your way through the video game, and at the end, there's the final guy you have to conquer and vanquish. And, and so Satan is the boss. He's the final enemy to be defeated, who stands behind and, and works through mysteriously all of these other things. And, and he's there lurking, and he's a reality. Um, let me look with you at another passage of Scripture that I think is really helpful for thinking through the, the reality of evil in the world and the reality of the dragon. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 12. Turn back to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 1157. 1157 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is another book that's really helpful for thinking about the relationship of this spiritual realm to our world. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, he's writing to Christians now. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So he's talking about the time these Christians, before they were Christians, when they used to live in their sins and were dead to Jesus, before Jesus raised them spiritually to new life. He says, You used to be dead in your sins when you followed the ways of the world, and, get this, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So if we're disobedient to God, if we don't follow God's ways, the the prince of the power of the air is at work in us, even if we don't sense it or see it or feel it. Verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So Ephesians is telling us that, that 
this dragon is at work in our lives whenever we follow the ways of the world or follow our own sinful desires. And at first that's a little jarring because I'm like, wait a minute. You know, really? I mean, Satan's at work. I mean, you know, you think of someone, you know, what's the kind of person where the devil's at work in their life? And, I, and you got the picture in your head. They're, they're a Satan worshiper, right? I mean, that's that kind of person. I know, a, I know a student in our church is actually in the military, and he, he was, uh, uh, went to, uh, to his barracks and his training, and he saw this other guy, this other, uh, soldier studying a Bible. He's like, oh, another Christian. Like, hey, what are you reading, you know? And the guy was reading the Satanic Bible. He's like, you know, like he's a self-professed Satanist, you know. And, and sometimes I think we think like, well, that's the kind of person where Satan is active in their life. So, you know, there's goths and there's, you know, people that wear black lipstick and wear pentagrams. And those are the people that are involved with Satan. And then there's a few Jesus freaks who are, you know, serious into Jesus. And then there's like everybody else. Like all the regular normal people who don't get too religious or who aren't into the weird devil stuff. They're just the normal suburbanites who, are, who just aren't in either camp and are just kind of living their lives. And Ephesians is saying, no, there's just there's one line. Either Christ or under the influence of the devil. And you don't have to wear black lipstick and pentagrams to be under the influence of the devil. What do you have to be? Well, look again at verse 2 of Ephesians 2. You simply have to follow the ways of the world. Or verse 3, gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature. So if I, just, if I just do what the world does, if I just accommodate my values, beliefs, and morals to the world's system around me, and if I just follow my own natural impulses and desires, if I, as the world tells me, listen to my heart, you know, your heart would never steer you wrong. <laughs> People, our hearts are sinful. I mean, it could take us wrong, the wrong way every time. But if I just do that, it says I will be under the influence of the dragon, even if I don't believe there's a dragon. Hey, maybe all the better, right? Because then I won't fight back. Maybe I'll just sort of go with the flow. I'm just normal. I'm just doing what everyone else does. Yeah, yeah, you know, the dragon's like, yeah, that's right. Just keep doing that. You're fine. And, and he's working in our lives. It seems that all we have to do to be under the influence of the dragon is to give in to greed and materialism. That all we have to do to be under the influence of the dragon is to, is to be consumed with bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment toward others. That we just have to be filled with anger and gossip. It says in Ephesians 4 to, to not go to bed while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anger is a foothold for Satan. We need to uh, simply be lustful or gluttonous unbelieving or hard-hearted. You don't have to open the satanic Bible for Satan to be at work in our lives. I think that should be a wake-up call for us as Christians. You know, what does this mean for us who are followers of Christ? I mean, I think at the very least, the reality of the dragon here in Revelation 12 should remind us that we need to be zealous about our faith. We we need to be serious about following Christ. We need to recognize that, that there's a spiritual war going on. And we have an enemy, so we need to really be intentional. Maybe that's the right word, intentional, about following Christ. You know, look at Ephesians chapter 6. Turn over a few pages. Ephesians 6. Here's what it means for us as Christians. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand 
against the devil's schemes. The devil is scheming to take me down. I need to take my stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So my struggle isn't against people. Ultimately, my enemy is not the person who lives next door to me who's on the other political party. Uh, you know, my, my ultimate enemy is not even terrorists or Al-Qaeda who would seek to take my life. And I want to pray for them that they would come to know Jesus. My enemy is a spiritual enemy. My struggle is not against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. So I think this is the application. I, I have to be more serious and more intentional about seeking the Lord. I, I can't let my spiritual fervor kind of die down and dwindle. You, you know how Satan attacks us here in the suburbs of the South Shore? I think his primary, one of his primary weapons is just complacency. Spiritual complacency. In other parts of the world... Christians are persecuted. Christians are thrown in jail. Christians sometimes give their lives. But not here. I mean, you know, we have everything we need. We, we have all the food we need. We have all the clothes. We, we have derby shops. I mean, enough said. We have derby. I mean, what else do we need? It's, it's just a, you didn't walk around and like pipe in that classical music. And you're just walking around like, oh, that's lovely here, you know. And you just, you're fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a happy place. Disneyland right up the street. Some of us are having a hard times. Some of us are out of work. Some of us are struggling financially. But I don't think anybody here is living in a cardboard box like people in Brazil who just got swept away in a mudslide this last week. None of our children, to my knowledge, have distended stomachs because of malnutrition. We're living in Disneyland. Even those of us who aren't in the best part of Disneyland are still in Disneyland. And, and I think that it is so difficult in this environment to keep up fervor for Christ because it's so easy to become complacent. I mean, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all fine. I mean, what's the big deal? And so our, our, our fervor for Christ dies down. I stop reading His Word. I stop seeking His face. I stop searching my heart to, to see, is there sin there that's keeping me from the Lord? How can I serve the Lord more? My, my zeal for evangelism dies down. My... my I don't pray for my children or my family the way I should. I, I don't, you know, seek God in every aspect of my life. I'm not asking the Lord every day, Lord, how can I serve you today? Who do you want me to reach out to with the gospel today? Do people even need the gospel? I mean, you know, if you drive a BMW, do you need a gospel? That's the question that, that sort of gets posed to us by our environment. So it's, it's hard. We become complacent. And once you become complacent, the next step is compromise. Complacency leads to compromise. And I begin to capitulate to the world around me. I begin to do things that I used to do and then stopped doing when I was saved. And now I'm starting to do them again. I start to, to compromise with the values of the world and start saying, well, you know, you know, that's just your morality and this is mine. And let's not judge each other. And let's not you know, judge myself. I just want to think good thoughts of myself. And the next thing you know, you're, we're back to where we used to be. Complacency leads to compromise. I think that's what was happening in part in these churches in Revelation, they had become complacent and compromised. Uh, do, do this. Take the bookmark out of Revelation. Put it in Ephesians. So I want to come back to Ephesians. And go to Revelation chapter 2. Here's a complacent and compromised church. Remember the letters to the seven churches? Remember studying this? So many months ago. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to the church in Thyatira, and he warns them about this compromise. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So there's some woman in their church who is a false teacher, but they had compromised and now they were, they were complacent and they let her be. And it says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. You see that word misleads? That's the same Greek word as appears in Revelation 12 about the dragon who leads the world astray. So here, for whatever reason, the translators translate it mislead. In chapter 12, they translate it leads astray, but it's the same Greek word. So in other words, this dragon who's behind the scenes is at work in their church through this woman. He's got a talon into their church. And they're just taking it you know, lightly. Like, ah, oh, you know, she's just got her views. And, and she does you know, give a lot to the church. And she is a really nice person. And she opens her home. But she's, false. she's a false teacher and the church is tolerating it. And through her, the dragon is at work. That's what they're trying to say. So we have to guard against complacency and compromise. I was, I was telling the first service, I, um, this whole idea of the, the sort of the slow compromise, I, I was struck by it this uh, last year, 2009, um, in a really jarring sort of way. I have a, a good friend of mine who's a pastor, and um, I've known him for a while, a good buddy, and, and then it came out in this last year that he had been having an affair with someone in his church. And it really hit me. Um, you know, I mean, we all know these things happen, you hear about them, but it's kind of different when it's somebody who's your friend who's close to you, and it, it, it just shook me. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. You know, I thought I knew this person, and I, and I didn't know this person. And uh, so I took a buddy of mine, and we went down to visit him after this news came out to minister to him. And as we, we were visiting him, you know, sort of like, how did this happen? And, and he told us the story. You know, it's like he, he was just in the church one day shaking hands, and, you know, some woman in the church just said to him, you know, you're really handsome. And he's like, oh, that felt good to hear that. And I don't have someone tell you you look nice. And they started chit-chatting more. And, and then what, what developed, he says, was for a year, we had no physical contact. We just talked on the phone every day for about 15, 20 minutes. Just chit-chat, how you doing? And then sharing more of their lives, becoming more and more personal. Until finally, after a year of that, the woman just said one day, hey, do you want to come over? And that was, that was the end of it. And he was in this affair for about a year, and then it finally broke off. And I remember sitting there with my buddy and this guy, and... We're having breakfast, and uh, he just said to me, if you told me three years ago that my ministry would be over to an affair, he goes, I would have laughed in your face. I would have said, no way could that ever happen to me. And now, fortunately, I think God's saving his marriage. But, you know, slowly but surely, and it can happen to any of us, not just in terms of our sexuality, but greed, anger, unforgiveness, unbelief, all of the different tools and tactics the dragon has. And so we have to be on our guard as Christians and recognize this is a spiritual conflict in which we find ourselves and be on our guard because nobody is, is beyond the dragon's influence if we listen to him. And this dragon wants to destroy. If you go back to Revelation 12, his goal is to destroy your life, to destroy my life. This dragon wants to keep people from Jesus, keep them trapped, keep them down. But if by God's power they come to faith in Jesus, then this dragon wants to keep them ineffective, fruitless, and asleep. To, to use that complacency to keep us 
asleep to to the spiritual things. Notice how destructive he is in verse 4. His tail swept away a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. So with his tail, he's sweeping stars out of the sky. With one end of his body, he's slashing at the heavens. With the other end of his body, he's there ready to devour this child. And so Satan was poised to destroy the Messiah. He came to destroy God's kingdom. You know, I think of the story of Jesus from the book of Matthew. Do you remember where, where Jesus was born and Herod found out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? And so Herod gave the order, kill all the children in Bethlehem two years old and younger. The dragon was trying to destroy the Messiah. But God protected Christ and His family and Mary and Joseph and they fled to Egypt. And then later on at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He was baptized and He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember what the devil said to Him? He said, look, I'll give you the whole world. All these kingdoms, see all these crowns I have in my head? I'll give them all to you. You can have them, Jesus. You can have the kingdom of God. You don't even have to go to the cross. Just, just I'll give it to you. There's only one condition. You need to worship Me. And so there, the devil was trying to trick and to deceive and lead Christ astray. But it didn't work. Jesus continued on His ministry. So, uh, unable to deceive Him and tempt Him, Satan turned to a more violent approach. And he brought the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law against Him who were testing Him and trying to trip Him up and trying to catch Him in His words so that they could persecute Him. But He, he just was, you know, it was like a ninja. You couldn't touch Him. You know, nothing could stick to Him. None of the arguments worked. Every argument he would turn back on their heads until finally the time came for Christ to lay down his life and he allowed Satan to have him. Satan used Judas to be greedy and to get that bag of silver and turn Jesus over. And then finally the dragon had him. Ah, I got him at last. You know, they, they arrested him there on that first holy week. And the dragon brought out his claws and began to slash at Jesus' body. They put this crown of thorns on his head and, and they whipped him and they put nails through his body. You just see the dragon's marks just having fun with his prey. And finally the dragon said, it's time for you to die. And the coils as Christ hung on the cross, just, I just imagine that, that serpent wrapping itself around Jesus' body, just slowly savoring, squeezing the life out of Him one breath at a time. And finally came the moment for Jesus' last breath there on the cross. And, and I can just imagine the serpent sort of putting his ear next to Jesus just to, to savor the joy of the Messiah's last breath. And as Jesus exhaled His last, what did He say? It is is finished. In the little movie in my mind, I imagine the serpent thinking, what did he just say? Tell me he just said, I am finished. No, he said, it is finished. He couldn't have said, it is finished. But in that moment of Christ's death, when it seemed that all was lost, when the darkness had engulfed the light, it was in that very moment that the victory had been won. Because Christ died on the cross, not as a hapless victim, but as the perfect sacrifice for sins. On the cross, Jesus was paying the debt to sin that I owe. And so at that moment when Satan thought he had destroyed the kingdom of God by killing the Messiah, in reality, the, the, the foundation of the kingdom of God was being laid through his death. And so it was a total reversal. Christ won the victory by paying for my sins in the moment of His death. 
And so, you know, again, I, I have this sort of movie in my head. I, I just imagine them putting Jesus' body in the tomb and rolling the stone in front of it. And I just imagine the dragon sort of sitting nervously by the stone for the next three days. Just, you know, I, I'm sure he's dead. I'm sure I won. No, I have to have won. But, you know, what he said, it is finished. And then finally, on the third day, the morning of the third day, the angels descend, the tomb opens, Christ walks out, and Satan flees like a garter snake in the grass because Christ is victorious. And that's what you see there in verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. So basically John takes the whole story of Jesus from birth to resurrection and just compresses it into like one sentence. You know, so it's, it's the whole thing just in a quick summary. He was born and then He's victor. He's raised. He has ascended up to God's throne. And so Christ is the victor. That's what we celebrated last Sunday on Easter. That Jesus' resurrection was the, the ascension and coronation of the King over God's kingdom. And now Christ is Lord. Jesus is, is Moses standing on the edge of the Red Sea watching the dragon drown in the waters. Jesus is uh, you know, the name that is above every name. He's the one in Colossians of whom it says that He disarmed the principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Or as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, He destroyed the works of the devil. Or as it says in Genesis, the serpent would strike His heel, but He would crush the serpent's head. And so Christ has risen victorious. And now everything's changed. Verse 6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. We'll talk about that next Sunday, but it's basically God's people are protected and nourished spiritually. Verse 7, there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The gr great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I, I believe what verses 7 to 9 describe are the defeat of Satan from heaven at the resurrection of Christ. So as Christ is raised to the Father's throne, now look at the consequences. Here's Satan being kicked out of heaven by Michael the archangel, who's kind of you know, one, one of God's chief angels in the Old Testament who protects God's people. Here's the dragon being thrown down. Don't you love that phrase, hurled down? It actually occurs twice in this passage. He's hurled down. He's not evicted. He's not asked to leave. It's not like when you get fired from your job and, and someone escorts you out and you sort of walk out nicely with your cardboard box full of stuff. He was hurled down. You know, the, the vision I had in my mind was a New England Patriot scoring a touchdown and just taking the ball, you know, and spiking it in the end zone. It, it's, like, it's like the dragon just got grabbed and, and just spiked, you know. And, and he's this, his fiery carcass hit the earth. There was this flood and all the, the angels of heaven went up in a cheer like everyone in the stadium. <sighs> That's in my head anyway. So um, Christ is the victor. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just close with this. Here it is in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 19. And I'll wrap this up. Ephesians 1.19 
that power, that power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and then what? Seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Christ was not only raised, but he, look, he was given power over all the authorities. Now get this. Go back to verse 18. This is amazing. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and saints. And get this, verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. There is power for us who believe. What power? It's like the power that raised Christ from the dead. And so that victorious power that we celebrate on Easter is ours as Christians. Ours to live a holy life. We don't have to live compromised lives. We don't have to live complacent lives, even though that's my total tendency. But there's power from God to strengthen me to live the Christian life. That the risen Christ has power to bring the prodigal son home. There is no addiction that you have that is more powerful than the power of the risen Christ. There is no brokenness and dysfunction and, and hurt from your past that is more powerful than the risen Christ. That's why I went and visited my pastor friend, former pastor friend, because I believe that Christ's power and resurrection is stronger than an affair. That God can restore and God can do amazing things. But we have to look to Christ and to His resurrection power. Let me just close with the reading of a prayer. This is actually in your bulletin if you want to take it out. It's called Resurrection. It's a Puritan prayer. We, we printed it out for you because we want you to take this home and meditate on it. It's just so good. But this is an old Puritan prayer. And here's what I'll do. I'll read it out loud as kind of the closing prayer. And you can just follow along silently as I read it. Make it your own prayer. Let me read it. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that His vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that His wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died. In Him I rose. In His life I live. In His victory I triumph. And in His ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, Thou who wast lifted up upon a cross, art ascended to the highest heaven. Thou who as a man of sorrows was crowned with thorns, art now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once, no more shame, no shame more deep than Thine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now, no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. 
Thou art in the triumph car, leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, and thy prayers my comfort. Amen. Would you please stand and let's continue to respond to the word of the Lord by singing, Thine is the glory, risen, conquering Son, endless is the victory, Thou or death hast won.
after the service, Jim and Suzanne Weston are here in the alcove. They would love to pray with you confidentially about anything that you're concerned about. We'd just love someone to pray with you for. And uh, uh, let, let me close the service in prayer again. Lord, we just thank you for your glory, for your triumph. And I just pray now you'd send your people out with hope and with courage to face the week. God, help us to carry the joy of victory upon our faces and, and the freedom and hope of Christ's liberation in our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would use us this week as ambassadors of freedom and hope. We might speak the name of Jesus to those who need to hear him. Lord, we love you and we pray this song in Christ's name. Amen.